Part Three of the Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Three of the Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley. Chapter Ten. On Omega. So the saying went, you couldn't fit a knife-blade between the trial and the execution of the sentence. Brent was taken at once to a large circular stone room in the basement of the Department of Justice. White arc-lights glared down at him from a high arched ceiling. Below, one section of wall had been cut away to provide a reviewing stand for spectators. The stands were almost filled when Berendt arrived, and hawkers were selling copies of the day's legal calendar. For a few moments Berendt was alone on the stone floor. Then a panel slid away in one curved wall, and a small machine rolled out. A loudspeaker set high in the reviewing stand announced, Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. You are about to witness Trial 642-BG-223 by Ordeal between Citizen Will Perrent and GME-213. Take your seats, please. The contest will begin in a few minutes. Perrent looked over his opponent. It was a glistening black machine shaped like a half-sphere, standing almost four feet high. It rolled restlessly back and forth on small wheels. A pattern of red, green, and amber lights from recessed glass bulbs flashed across its smooth metal hide. It stirred in Berent a vague memory of some creature from Earth's oceans. For the benefit of those who are visiting our gallery for the first time, the loudspeaker said, a word of explanation is in order. The prisoner, Will Berent, has freely chosen the trial by ordeal. The instrument of justice, which in this instance is GME-213, is an example of the finest creative engineering which Omega has produced. The machine, or MAX, as its many friends and admirers call it, is a murder weapon of exemplary efficiency able to utilize no less than twenty-three killing modes, many of them extremely painful. For trial purposes it is set to operate upon a random principle. This means that Max has no choice over the way in which it kills. The modes are selected and abandoned by a random arrangement of twenty-three numbers, linked to an equally random time selection of one to six seconds. Max suddenly moved toward the center of the room, and Berendt backed away from it. It is within the prisoner's power, the loudspeaker voice continued, to disable the machine, in which case the prisoner wins the contest and is set free with full rights and privileges of his station. The method of disabling varies from machine to machine. It is always theoretically possible for a prisoner to win. Practically speaking, this has happened on an average of 3.5 times out of a hundred. Berendt looked up at the gallery of spectators. To judge by their dress, they were all men and women of status, high in the ranks of the privileged classes. Then he saw, sitting in a front-row seat, the girl who had lent him her gun on his first day in Tetrahyde. She was as beautiful as he had remembered her, but no hint of emotion touched her pale, oval face. She stared at him with the frank and detached interest of someone watching an unusual bug under a jar. Let the contest begin, the loudspeaker announced. 
Barrent had no more time to think about the girl, for the machine was rolling toward him. He circled warily away from it. Max extruded a single slender tentacle with a white light winking in the end of it. The machine rolled toward Barrent, backing him toward a wall. Abruptly it stopped. Barrent heard the clank of gears. The tentacle was withdrawn, and in its place appeared a jointed metal arm which ended in a knife edge. Moving more quickly now, the machine cornered him against the wall. The arm flicked out, but Barrent managed to dodge it. He heard the knife-edge scrape against stone. When the arm withdrew, Barrent had a chance to move again into the center of the room. He knew that his only chance to disable the machine was during the pause when its selector changed it from one killing mode to another. But how do you disable a smooth-surfaced, turtle-backed machine? Max came at him again, and now its metal hide glistened with a dull green substance which Barrent immediately recognized as contact poison. He broke into a spring, circling the room, trying to avoid the fatal touch. The machine stopped. Neutralizer washed over its surface, clearing away the poison. Then the machine was coming toward him again, this time with no weapons visible, apparently intending to ram. Barrent was badly winded. He dodged, and the machine dodged with him. He was standing against the wall, helpless, as the machine picked up speed. It stopped inches from him. Its selector clicked. Max was extruding some sort of club. This, Barrent thought, was an exercise in applied sadism. If it went on much longer, the machine would run him off his feet and kill him at its leisure. Whatever he was going to do, he had better do it at once, while he still had the strength. Even as he thought that, the machine swung a clubbed metal arm. Barrent couldn't avoid the blow completely. The club struck his left shoulder, and he felt his arm go numb. Max was selecting again. Barrent threw himself on its smooth, rounded back. At the very top he saw two tiny holes. Praying that they were air intake openings, Barrent plugged them with his fingers. The machine stopped dead, and the audience roared. Barrent clung to the smooth surface with his numbed arm, trying to keep his fingers in the holes. The pattern of lights on Max's surface changed from green through amber to red. Its deep-throated buzz became a dull hum. And then the machine extruded tubes as alternate intake holes. Barrent tried to cover them with his body, but the machine, roaring into sudden life, swiveled rapidly and threw him off. Barrent rolled to his feet and moved back to the center of the arena. The contest had lasted no more than five minutes, but Barrent was exhausted. He forced himself to retreat from the machine, which was coming at him now with a broad, gleaming hatchet. As the hatchet arm swung, Barrent threw himself at it instead of away. He caught the arm in both hands and bent it back. Metal creaked, and Barrent thought he could hear the joint beginning to give way. If he could break off the metal arm, he might disable the machine. At the very least, the arm would be a weapon. Max suddenly went into reverse. Brent tried to keep his grip on the arm, but it was yanked away. He fell on his face. The hatchet swung, gouging his shoulder. Brent rolled over and looked at the gallery. He was finished. He might as well accept the machine's next attempt gracefully and have it over with. The spectators were cheering, watching Max begin its transformation into another killing mode. And the girl was motioning to him. Brent stared trying to make some sense out of it. 
She gestured at him to turn something over, turn it over and destroy. He had no more time to watch. Dizzy from loss of blood, he staggered to his feet and watched the machine charge. He didn't bother to see what weapon it had extruded. His entire attention was concentrated on its wheels. As it came at him, Barrent threw himself under the wheels. The machine tried to brake and swerve, but not in time. The wheels rolled onto Barrent's body, tilting the machine sharply upward. Barrent grunted under the impact. With his back under the machine, he put his remaining strength in an attempt to stand up. For a moment the machine teetered, its wheels spinning wildly. Then it flipped over on its back. Barrent collapsed beside it. When he could see again, the machine was still on its back. It was extruding a set of arms to turn itself over. Barrent threw himself on the machine's flat belly and hammered with his fists. Nothing happened. He tried to pull off one of the wheels and couldn't. Max was propping itself up, preparing to turn over and resume the contest. The girl's motions caught Barrent's eye. She was making a plucking motion, repeatedly, insistently. Only then Barrent saw a small fuse-box near one of the wheels. He yanked off the cover, losing most of a fingernail in the process, and removed the fuse. The machine expired gracefully. Barrent fainted. Chapter 11 On Omega, the law is supreme. Hidden and revealed, sacred and profane, the law governs the actions of all citizens from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. Without the law there could be no privileges for those who made the law. Therefore the law was absolutely necessary. Without the law and its stern enforcement, Omega would be an unthinkable chaos in which a man's rights could extend only as far and as long as he personally could enforce them. This anarchy would mean the end of Omegan society, and particularly it would mean the end of those senior citizens of the ruling class who had grown high in status, but whose skill with a gun had long passed its peak. Therefore, the law was necessary. But Omega was also a criminal society, composed entirely of individuals who had broken the laws of Earth. It was a society in which the final analysis stressed individual endeavor. It was a society in which the lawbreaker was king. A society in which crimes were not only condoned, but were admired and even rewarded. A society in which deviation from the rules was judged solely on its degree of success. And this resulted in the paradox of a criminal society with absolute laws which were meant to be broken. The judge, still hidden behind his screen, explained all this to Barrent. Several hours had passed since the end of the trial by ordeal. Barrent had been taken to the infirmary where his injuries were patched up. They were minor, for the most part. Two cracked ribs, a deep gouge in his left shoulder, and various cuts and bruises. Accordingly, the judge went on, the law must simultaneously be broken and not broken. Those who never break a law never rise in status. They are usually killed off in one way or another since they lack the necessary initiative to survive. For those who, like yourself, break laws, the situation is somewhat different. The law punishes them with absolute severity, unless they can get away with it. The judge paused. In a thoughtful voice he continued, 
The highest type of man on Omega is the individual who understands the laws, appreciates their necessity, knows the penalties for infraction, then breaks them, and succeeds. That, sir, is your ideal criminal, and your ideal Omegan. And that is what you have succeeded in doing, Wilberent, by winning the trial by ordeal. Thank you, sir, Berent said. I wish you to understand, the judge continued, that success in breaking the law once does not imply that you will succeed a second time. The odds are increasingly against you each time you try, just as the rewards are increasingly greater if you succeed. Therefore, I counsel you not to act rashly upon your new acquisition of knowledge. I won't, sir, Berent said. Very well. You are hereby elevated to the status of privileged citizen, with all the rights and obligations which that entails. You are allowed to keep your business as before. Furthermore, you are granted a week's free vacation in the Lake of Clouds region, and you may go on that vacation with any female of your choice." "'I beg pardon?' Berent said. "'What was that last?' "'A week's vacation,' the hidden judge repeated, "'with any female of your choice. It is a high reward, since men outnumber women on Omega by six to one. You may pick any unmarried woman, willing or unwilling. I will grant you three days in which to make a choice." "'I don't need three days,' Berent said. I want the girl who was sitting in the front row of the spectators' gallery. The girl with black hair and green eyes. Do you know which one I mean?" "'Yes,' the judge said slowly. I know which one you mean. Her name is Moira Hermaeus. I suggest that you choose someone else. Is there any reason? No, but you would be much better advised if you selected someone else. My clerk will be pleased to furnish you with a list of suitable young ladies. All of them have affidavits of good performance. Several are graduates of the Women's Institute, which, as you perhaps know, gives a rigorous two-year course in the Gaetian arts and sciences. I can personally recommend your attention to— Moira is the one I want, Berent said. Young man, you err in your judgment. I'll have to take that chance. Very well, the judge said. Your vacation starts at nine tomorrow morning. I sincerely wish you good fortune. Guards escorted Berent from the judge's chambers, and he was taken back to his shop. His friends, who had been waiting for the death announcement, came to congratulate him. They were eager to hear the complete details of the trial by ordeal. But Berent had learned now that secret knowledge was the road to power. He gave them only the sketchiest outline. There was another cause for celebration that night. Tem Wren's application had finally been accepted by the Assassin's Guild. As he had promised, he was taking Foran on as his assistant. The following morning Berent opened his shop and saw a vehicle in front of his door. It had been provided for his vacation by the Department of Justice. Sitting in the back, looking beautiful and very annoyed, was Moira. She said, Are you out of your mind, Berent? Do you think I have time for this sort of thing? Why did you pick me? You saved my life, Berent said. And I suppose you think that means I'm interested in you. Well, I'm not. If you have any gratitude, you'll tell the driver that you've changed your mind. You can still choose another girl." Berent shook his head. You're the only girl I'm interested in. Then you won't reconsider? Not a chance. 
Moira sighed and leaned back. Are you really interested in me? Much more than interested, Barrent said. Well, Moira said, if you won't change your mind, I suppose I'll just have to put up with you. She turned away, but before she did, Barrent caught the faintest suggestion of a smile. Chapter 12 The Lake of Clouds was Omega's finest vacation resort. Upon entering the district, all weapons had to be checked at the main gate. No duels were allowed under any circumstances. Quarrels were arbitrarily decided by the nearest barman and murder was punished by immediate loss of all status. Every amusement was available at the Lake of Clouds. There were the exhibitions, such as fencing bouts and bullfighting and bear-baiting. There were sports like swimming, mountain-climbing, and skiing. In the evenings there was dancing in the main ballroom, behind glass walls which separated residents from citizens and citizens from the elite. There was a well-stocked drug bar, containing anything the fashionable addict could desire, as well as a few novelties he might wish to sample. For the gregarious there was an orgy every Wednesday and Saturday night in the Satyr's Grotto. For the shy the management arranged masked trysts in the dim passageways beneath the hotel. But most important of all, there were gently rolling hills and shadowy woods to walk in, free from the tensions of the daily struggle for existence in Tetrahyde. Barrent and Moira had adjoining rooms, and the door between them was unlocked. But on the first night, Barrent did not go through the door. Moira had given no sign of wanting him to do so, and on a planet where women have easy and continual access to poisons, a man had to think twice before inflicting his company where it was not wanted. Even the owner of an antidote shop had to consider the possibility of not being able to recognize his own symptoms in time. On their second day they climbed high into the hills. They ate a basket lunch on a grassy incline which sloped away to the gray sea. After they had eaten, Barrent asked Moira why she had saved his life. You won't like the answer, she told him. I'd still like to hear it. Well, you looked so ridiculously vulnerable that day in the Victim Society. I, I, I would have helped anyone who looked that way. Barrent nodded uncomfortably. What about the second time? By then, I suppose I had an interest in you. Not, not a romantic interest, you understand. I'm, I'm not at all romantic. What kind of an interest? Barrent asked. I thought you might be good recruitment material. I'd like to hear more about it, Barrent said. Moira was silent for a while, watching him with unblinking green eyes. She said, there's not much I can tell you. I'm a member of an organization. We're always on the lookout for good prospects. Usually we screen directly from the prison ships. After that, recruiters like me go out in search of people we can use. What type of people do you look for? Not your type, Will. I'm sorry. Why not me? At first I thought seriously about recruiting you, Moira said. You seemed just like the sort of person we needed. Then I checked into your record. And? We don't recruit murderers. Sometimes we employ them for specific jobs, but we don't take them into the organization. There are certain extenuating circumstances which we recognize. 
Self-defense, for example. But aside from that, we feel that a man who has committed premeditated murder on Earth is the wrong man for us." I see, Barrent said. Would it help any if I told you I don't have the usual Omegan attitude toward murder? I know you don't, Moira said. If it were up to me, I'd take you into the organization, but it's not my choice. Will, are you sure you're a murderer? I believe I am, Barrent said. I, I probably am. Too bad, Moira said. Still, the organization needs high survival types, no matter what they did on Earth. I can't promise anything, but I'll see what I can do. It would help if you could find out more about why you committed murder. Perhaps there were extenuating circumstances." Perhaps, Brent said doubtfully. I'll try to find out. That evening, just before he went to sleep, Moira opened the adjoining door and came into his room. Slim and warm, she slipped into his bed. When he started to speak, she put a hand over his mouth, and Barrent, who had learned not to question good fortune, kept quiet. The rest of the vacation passed much too quickly. The subject of the organization did not come up again, but perhaps as compensation the adjoining door was not closed. At last, late on the seventh day, Barrent and Moira returned to Tetrahyde. When can I see you again? Barrent asked. I'll get in touch with you. That's not a very satisfactory arrangement. It's the best I can do, Moira said. I'm sorry, Will. I'll see what I can do about the organization. Barrent had to be satisfied with that. When the vehicle dropped him at his store, he still didn't know where she lived or what kind of an organization she represented. Back in his apartment, he considered carefully the details of his dream in the dream shop. It was all there. His anger at Thurcaller, the illicit weapon, the encounter, the corpse, and then the informer and the judge. Only one thing was missing. He had no recollection of the actual murder, no memory of aiming the weapon and activating it. The dream stopped when he met Thurcaller, and started again after he was dead. Perhaps he had blocked the moment of actual murder out of his mind, but perhaps there had been some provocation, some satisfactory reason why he had killed the man. He would have to find out. There were only two ways of getting information about Earth. One lay through the horror-tinged visions of the dream shop, and he was determined not to go there again. The other way was through the services of a screening mutant. Barrent had the usual distaste for mutants. They were another race entirely, and their status of untouchability was no mere prejudice. It was well known that mutants often carried strange and incurable diseases. They were shunned, and they had reacted to exclusion by exclusiveness. They lived in the Mutant Quarter, which was almost a self-contained city within Tetrahyde. Citizens with good sense stayed away from the Quarter, especially after dark. Everyone knew that mutants could be vindictive. But only mutants had the screening ability. In their misshapen bodies were unusual powers and talents, odd and abnormal abilities which the normal man shunned by day, but secretly courted by night. Mutants were said to be in the particular favor of the Black One. Some people felt that the great art of black magic, about which the priests boasted, could only be performed by mutants, but one never said so in the presence of a priest. Mutants, because of their strange talents, were reputed to remember much more of Earth than was possible for normal men and women. 
Not only could they remember Earth in general, but in particular they could scren the life-thread of a man backward through space and time, pierce the wall of forgetfulness, and tell what really had happened to him. Other people believed that mutants had no unusual abilities at all. They considered them clever rogues who lived off people's credulity. Barrent decided to find out for himself. Late one night, suitably cloaked and armed, he left his apartment and went to the mutant quarter. Chapter 13 Barrent walked through the narrow, twisting streets of the quarter, one hand never far from his weapon. He walked among the lame and the blind, past hydrocephaloid and microcephalous idiots past a juggler who kept twelve flaming torches in the air with the aid of a rudimentary third hand growing out of his chest. There were vendors selling clothing, charms, and jewelry. There were carts loaded with pungent and unsanitary-looking food. He walked past a row of brightly painted brothels. Girls crowded the windows and shrieked at him, and a four-armed, six-legged woman told him he was just in time for the Delphian rites. Barrent turned away from her and almost ran into a monstrously fat woman who pulled open her blouse to reveal eight shrunken breasts. He ducked around her, moving quickly past four linked Siamese quadruplets who stared at him with huge, mournful eyes. Barrent turned a corner and stopped. A tall, ragged old man with a cane was blocking his way. The man was half-blind. The skin had grown smooth and hairless over the socket where his left eye should have been, but his right eye was sharp and fierce under a white eyebrow. "'You wish the services of a genuine Skrenner?' the old man asked. Barrent nodded. "'Follow me,' the mutant said. He turned into an alley, and Barrent came after him, gripping the butt of his needle-beam tightly. Mutants were forbidden by law to carry arms, but like this old man, most of them had heavy, iron-headed walking sticks. At close quarters, no one could ask for a better weapon. The old man opened a door and motioned Barrent inside. Barrent paused, thinking about the stories he had heard of gullible citizens falling into mutant hands. Then he half drew his needle-beam and went inside. At the end of a long passageway, the old man opened a door and led Barrent into a small, dimly-lighted room. As his eyes became accustomed to the dark, Barrent could make out the shapes of two women sitting in front of a plain wooden table. There was a pan of water on the table, and in the pan was a fist-sized piece of glass cut into many facets. One of the women was very old and completely hairless. The other was young and beautiful. As Barrent moved closer to the table, he saw with a sense of shock that her legs were joined below the knee by a membrane of scaly skin, and her feet were of a rudimentary fishtail shape. "'What do you wish us to scren for you, Citizen Barrent?' the young woman asked. "'How did you know my name?' Barrent asked. When he got no answer, he said, "'All right. I want to find out about a murder I committed on Earth. Why do you want to find out about it? the young woman asked. Won't the authorities credit it to your record? They credit it, but I want to find out why I did it. Maybe there were extenuating circumstances. Maybe I did it in self-defense. Is it really important? the young woman asked. I think so, Barrent said. He hesitated a moment, then took the plunge. 
The, the fact of the matter is, I, I have a neurotic prejudice against murder. I would rather not kill. So I want to find out why I committed murder on Earth." The mutants looked at each other. Then the old man grinned and said, Citizen, we'll help you all we can. We mutants also have a prejudice against killing, since it's always someone else killing us. We're all in favor of citizens with a neurosis against murder. Then you'll scren my past? It's not as easy as that, the young woman said. The screening ability, which is one of a cluster of psi talents, is difficult to use. It doesn't always function, and when it does, it often doesn't reveal what it's supposed to. I thought all mutants could look into the past whenever they wanted to, Barrent said. No, the old man told him, that, that isn't true. For one thing, not all of us who are classified mutants are true mutants. Almost any deformity or abnormality these days is called mutantism. It's a handy term to cover anyone who doesn't conform to the Terran standard of appearance. But some of you are true mutants. Certainly, but even then there are different types of mutantism. Some just show radiation abnormalities, gigantism, microcephaly, and the like. Only a few of us possess the slightest psi abilities, although all mutants claim them. Are you able to scren? Barrent asked him. No, but Myla can, he said, pointing to the young woman. Sometimes she can. The young woman was staring into the pan of water, into the faceted glass. Her pale eyes were open very wide, showing almost all pupil, and her fish-tailed body was rigidly upright, supported by the old woman. She's beginning to see something, the man said. The water and the glass are just devices to focus her attention. Myla's good at screening, though sometimes she gets the future confused with the past. That sort of thing is embarrassing, and it gives screening a bad name. It can't be helped, though. Every once in a while the future is there in the water, and Myla has to tell what she sees. Last week she told a Haji he was going to die in four days. The old man chuckled. You should have seen the expression on his face. Did she see how he would die? Barrent asked. Yes, by a knife thrust. The poor man stayed in his house for the entire four days. Was he killed? Of course. His wife killed him. She was a strong-minded woman, I'm told. Barrent hoped that Myla would not scren any future for him. Life was difficult enough without a mutant's predictions to make it worse. She was looking up from the faceted glass now, shaking her head sadly. There's very little I can tell you. I was not able to see the murder performed. But I screnned a graveyard, and in it I saw your parents' tombstone. It was an old tombstone, perhaps twenty years old. The graveyard was on the outskirts of a place on earth called Youngerston. Barrent reflected a moment, but the name meant nothing to him. Also, Myla said, I screnned a man who knows about the murder. He can tell you about it if he will. This man saw the murder? Yes. Is he the man who informed on me? I, I don't know, Myla said. I screnned the corpse, whose name was Thurcaller, and there was a man standing near it. That man's name was Ilardi. Is he here on Omega? Yes. You can find him right now in the Euphoratorium on Little Axe Street. Do you know where that is? I can find it, 
Barrent said. He thanked the girl and offered payment, which she refused to take. She looked very unhappy. As Barrent was leaving, she called out, Be careful! Barrent stopped at the door and felt an icy chill settle across his chest. Did you scren my future? he asked. Only a little, Myla said. Only a few months ahead. What did you see? I can't explain it, she said. What I saw is impossible. Tell me what it was. I, I saw you dead, and yet you weren't dead at all. You were looking at a corpse which was shattered into shiny fragments, but the corpse was also you. What does it mean? I don't know, Myla said. The Euphoratorium was a large, garish place which specialized in cut-rate drugs and aphrodisiacs. It catered mostly to a peon and resident clientele. Barrent felt out of status as he shouldered his way through the crowd and asked a waiter where he could find a man named Illardi. The waiter pointed. In a corner booth, Barrent saw a bald, thick-shouldered man sitting over a tiny glass of Thanapakita. Barrent went over and introduced himself. "'Pleased to meet you, sir,' Illardi said, showing the obligatory respect of a second-class resident for a privileged citizen. "'How can I be of service?' "'I want to ask you a few questions about Earth,' Barrent said. "'I can't remember much about the place,' Illardi said, "'but you're welcome to anything I know.' Do you remember a man named Thurcaller? Certainly, Illardi said. Thin fellow, cross-eyed, as mean a man as you could find. Were you present when he was killed? I was there. It was the first thing I remembered when I got off the ship. Did you see who killed him? Illardi looked puzzled. I didn't have to see. I killed him. Barrent forced himself to speak in a calm, steady voice. Are you sure of that? Are you absolutely certain?" Of course I'm sure, Illardi said, and I'll fight any man who tries to take credit for it. I killed Thurcaller, and he deserved worse than that. When you killed him, Barrent asked, did you see me anywhere around? Illardi looked at him carefully, then shook his head. No, I, I don't think I saw you, but I can't be sure. Right after I killed Thurcaller, everything goes sort of blank. Thank you, Barrent said. He left the Euphoratorium. Chapter 14 Barrent had much to think about, but the more he thought, the more he became confused. If Illardi had killed Thurcaller, why had Barrent been deported to Omega? If an honest mistake had been made, why hadn't he been released when the true murderer was discovered? Why had someone on earth accused him of a crime he hadn't committed? And why had a false memory of that crime been superimposed on his mind just beneath the conscious level? Barrent had no answers for his questions, but he knew that he had never felt like a murderer. Now he had proof, of sorts, that he wasn't a murderer. The sensation of innocence changed everything for him. He had less tolerance for Omegan ways, and no interest at all in conforming to a criminal mode of life. The only thing he wanted was to escape from Omega and return to his rightful heritage on Earth. But that was impossible. Day and night the guardships circled overhead. Even if there had been some way of evading them, escape would still have been impossible. 
Omegan technology had progressed only as far as the internal combustion engine. The only starships were commanded by Earth forces. Barrent continued to work in the antidote shop, but his lack of public spirit was growing apparent. He ignored invitations from the dream shop and never attended any of the popular public executions. When roving mobs were formed to have a little fun in the mutant quarter, Barrent usually pleaded a headache. He never joined the landing day hunts, and he was rude to an accredited salesman from the Torture of the Month Club. Not even visits from Uncle Ingemar could make him change his anti-religious ways. He knew he was asking for trouble. He expected trouble, and the knowledge was strangely exhilarating. After all, there was nothing wrong in breaking the law on Omega, as long as you could get away with it. Within a month he had a chance to test his decision. Walking to his shop one day, a man shoved against him in a crowd. Barrent moved away, and the man grabbed him by a shoulder and pulled him around. "'Who do you think you're pushing?' the man asked. He was short and stocky. His clothes indicated privileged citizen's rank. Five silver stars on his gun belt showed his number of authorized kills. "'I didn't push you,' Barrent said. "'You lie, you mutant lover!' The crowd became silent when they heard the deadly insult. Barrent backed away, waiting. The man went for his sidearm in a quick, artistic draw, but Barrent's needle-beam was out a full half-second before the man's weapon had cleared his holster. He drilled the man neatly between the eyes, then, sensing movement behind him, he swung around. Two privileged citizens were drawing heat-guns. Barrent fired, aiming automatically, dodging behind the protection of a shop-front. The men crumpled. The wooden front buckled under the impact of a projectile weapon, and splinters slashed his hand. Barrent saw a fourth man firing at him from an alley. He brought the man down with two shots. And that was that. In the space of a few seconds he had killed four men. Although he didn't think of himself as having a murderer's mentality, Barrent was pleased and elated. He had fired only in self-defense. He had given the status-seekers something to think about. They wouldn't be so quick to gun for him next time. Quite possibly they would concentrate on easier targets and leave him alone. When he returned to his shop, he found Joe waiting for him. The little credit thief had a sour look on his face. He said, I saw your fancy gun work today. Very pretty. Thank you, Barrent said. Do you think that sort of thing will help you? Do you think you can just go on breaking the law? I'm getting away with it. Barrent said. Sure, but how long do you think you can keep it up? As long as I have to. Not a chance, Joe said. Nobody keeps on breaking the law and getting away with it. O only suckers believe that. They'd better send some good men after me, Barrent said, reloading his needle-beam. That's not how it will happen, Joe said. Believe me, Will, there's no counting the ways they have of getting at you. Once the law decides to move, there'll be nothing you can do to stop it. And don't expect any help from that girlfriend of yours, either." "'Do you know her?' Barrent asked. "'I know everybody,' Joe said moodily. "'I've got friends in the government. I know that people have had about enough of you. Listen to me, Will. Do you want to end up dead?' Barrent shook his head. "'Joe, can you visit Moira? Do you know how to reach her?' "'Maybe,' Joe said. What for? I want you to tell her something, Barrent said. I want you to tell her that I didn't commit the murder I was accused of on Earth. 
Joe stared at him. Are you out of your mind? No, I, I found the man who actually did it. He's a second-class resident named Illardi. Why spread it around? Joe asked. No sense in losing credit for the kill. I didn't murder the man, Barrent said. I want you to tell Moira. Will you? I'll tell her, Joe said, if I can locate her. Look, will you remember what I've said? Maybe you still have some time to do something about it. Go, go to a black mass or something. It might help. Maybe I'll do that, Barrent said. You'll be sure to tell her? I'll tell her, Joe said. He left the antidote shop, shaking his head sadly. Chapter 15 Three days later, Barrent received a visit from a tall, dignified man who stood as rigidly erect as the ceremonial sword that hung from his side. The old man wore a high-collared coat, black pants, and gleaming black boots. From his clothing, Barrent knew he was a high government official. The government of Omega sends you greetings, said the official. I am Norins J., sub-minister of games. I am here, as required by law, to inform you personally of your good fortune." Barrent nodded warily and invited the old man into his apartment, but Jay, erect and proper, preferred to stay in the store. The yearly lottery drawing was held last night, Jay said. You, Citizen Barrent, are one of the prize winners. I congratulate you. What is the prize? Barrent asked. He had heard of the yearly lottery, but had only a vague idea of its significance. The prize, Jay said, is honor and fame. Your name inscribed on the civic rolls, your record of kills preserved for posterity. More concretely, you will receive a new government-issue needle-beam, and afterwards you will be awarded posthumously the silver sunburst decoration. Posthumously? Of course, Jay said. The silver sunburst is always awarded after death. It is no less an honor for that. I'm sure it isn't, Barrett said. Is there anything else? Just one other thing, Jay said. As a lottery winner, you will take part in the symbolic ceremony of the hunt, which marks the beginning of the yearly games. The hunt, as you may know, personifies our Omegan way of life. In the hunt we see all the complex factors of the dramatic rise and fall from grace combined with the thrill of the duel and the excitement of the chase. Even peons are allowed to participate in the hunt, for this is the one holiday open to all, and the one holiday that symbolizes the common man's ability to rise above the restraints of his status. If I understand correctly, Barrent said, I'm one of the people who have been chosen to be hunted. Yes. Jay said. But you said the ceremony is symbolic. Doesn't that mean no one gets killed? Not at all, Jay said. On Omega, the symbol and the thing symbolized are usually one and the same. When we say a hunt, we mean a true hunt. Otherwise, the thing would be mere pageantry. Barrent stopped a moment to consider the situation. It was not a pleasing prospect. In a man-to-man -man duel he had an excellent chance of survival, but the yearly hunt in which the entire population of Tetrahyde took part gave him no chance at all. He should have been ready for a possibility like this. "'How was I picked?' he asked. "'By random selection,' said Norrin's Jay. "'No other method would be fair to the hunteds who give up their lives for Omega's greater glory.' "'I can't believe I was picked purely by chance.' The selection was random, 
Jay said. It was made, of course, from a list of suitable victims. Not everyone can be a quarry in a hunt. A, a man must have demonstrated a considerable degree of tenacity and skill before the games committee would think of considering him for the selection. Being hunted is an honor. It is not one which we confer lightly. I don't believe it, Barrent said. You people in the government were out to get me. Now it seems you've succeeded. It's as simple as that. Not at all. I can assure you that none of us in the government bear you the slightest ill will. You may have heard foolish stories about vindictive officials, but they simply aren't true. You have broken the law, but that is no longer the government's concern. Now it's entirely a matter between you and the law. Jay's frosty blue eyes flashed when he spoke of the law. His back stiffened, and his mouth grew firm. The law, he said, is above the criminal and the judge, and rules them both. The law is inescapable, for any action is either lawful or unlawful. The law, indeed, may be said to have a life of its own, an existence quite apart from the finite lives of the beings who administer it. The law governs every aspect of human behavior. Therefore, to the same extent that humans are lawful beings, the law is human. And being human, the law has its idiosyncrasies, just as a man has his. For a citizen who abides by the law, the law is distant and difficult to find. For those who reject and violate it, the law emerges from its musty sepulchres and goes in search of the transgressor. And that, Barrent said, is why I was chosen for the hunt. Of course, Jay said. If you had not been chosen in that way, the zealous and never-sleeping law would have selected another means, using whatever instruments were at its disposal. Thanks for telling me, Barrent said. How long do I have before the hunt begins? Until dawn. The hunt begins then, and ends at dawn of the following day. What happens if I'm not killed? Norin's Jay smiled faintly. That doesn't happen often, Citizen Barrent. I'm sure it need not worry you. It happens, doesn't it? Yes. Those who survive the hunt are automatically enrolled in the games. And if I survive the games? Forget it, Jay said in a friendly manner. But what if I do? Believe me, Citizen, you won't. I still would like to know what happens if I do. Those who live through the games are beyond the law. That sounds promising, Barrent said. It isn't. The law, even at its most threatening, is still your guardian. Your rights may be few, but the law guarantees their observance. It is because of the law that I do not kill you here and now. Jay opened his hand, and Barrent saw a tiny single-charge weapon. The law sets limits and acts as a modifier upon the behavior of the lawbreaker and the law-enforcer. To be sure, the law now states that you must die, but all men must die. The law, by its ponderous and introspective nature, gives you time in which to die. You have a day, at least, and without the law, you would have no time at all. What happens, Barrent asked, if I survive the games and pass beyond the law? There is only one thing beyond the law, Norin's Jay said reflectively, and that is the Black One himself. Those who pass beyond the law belong to him, but it would be better to die a thousand times than to fall living into the hands of the Black One. 
Barrent had long ago dismissed the religion of the Black One as superstitious nonsense, but now, listening to Jay's earnest voice, he began to wonder. There might be a difference between the commonplace worship of evil and the actual presence of evil itself. But if you have any luck, Jay said, you will be killed early. Now I will end the interview with your final instructions. Still holding the tiny weapon, Jay reached into a pocket with his free hand and withdrew a red pencil. In a quick practiced motion, he drew the pencil over Barrent's cheeks and forehead. He was finished before Barrent had time to recoil. That marks you as one of the hunted, Jay said. The hunt marks are indelible. Here is your government-issue needlebeam. He drew a weapon from his pocket and put it on the table. The hunt, as I told you, begins at first light of dawn. Anyone may kill you then, except another hunted man. You may kill in return, but I suggest that you do so with the utmost circumspection. The sound and flash of needlebeams have given many hunteds away. If you try concealment, be sure you have an exit. Remember that others know tetrahyde better than you. Skilled hunters have explored all the possible hiding places over the years. Many of the hunted are trapped during the first hours of the holiday. Good luck, Citizen Barrent. Jay walked to the door. He opened it and turned to Barrent again. There is, I might add, one barely possible way of preserving both life and liberty during the hunt, but since it is forbidden, I cannot tell you what it is. Norin's Jay bowed and went out. Barrent found, after repeated washings, that the crimson hunt marks on his face were indeed indelible. During the evening he disassembled the government-issue needlebeam and inspected its parts. As he had suspected, the weapon was defective. He discarded it in favor of his own. He made preparations for the hunt, putting food, water, a coil of rope, a knife, extra ammunition, and a spare needlebeam into a small knapsack. Then he waited, hoping against all reason that Moira and her organization would bring him a last-minute reprieve. But no reprieve came. An hour before dawn, Barrent shouldered his knapsack and left the antidote shop. He had no idea what the other hunteds were doing, but he had already decided on a place that might be secure from the hunters. End of Part 3 of The Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley